Last week we talked about the sovereignty of God in, in prayer and how we have a God who is both personal and sovereign. Having talked about the basics of God's sovereignty in prayer, I want to tonight just give you five basic facts about the sovereignty of God and prayer as we finish our series on prayer. Uh, the, the, the first fact is probably going to be the longest, so don't think, oh man, this is going to take five times this amount of time. That's not the case. And if we don't finish by 8 o'clock, we'll just pick it up next week. But this is a last lesson, whether it takes one night or two nights, on this series on prayer. So five, five basic facts about the sovereignty of God and prayer. Fact number one. Believers in both the Old and New Testaments had no problem believing in both the absolute sovereignty of God and of the necessity of prayer. There was, there was something that just went unquestioned. The, we see there are brothers and sisters in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant affirming the sovereignty of God and praying really hard uh, after affirming the sovereignty of God. For example, open your Bibles to Daniel uh, chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. One of the most famous prayers, I think, in the Bible is Daniel chapter 9. And in verses 1, and th- 1 through 3, we have the historical background for the prayer. So Daniel 9, starting verse 1. In the first year of Darius the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So what's Daniel doing here? So Daniel is reading his Bible, or he's reading a scroll of Jeremiah, And he sees in Jeremiah that God had said and had appointed 70 years for the captivity. So he said, okay, 70 years, that was 605 B.C. Okay, work with me, right? He didn't say 605 B.C. because, uh, yes, but let's say that was, uh, no, we're just working for TV here. Uh, 605 B.C., well, it's 535 B.C., that's 70 years. Then what God said is going to happen is going to happen. And what, what did he do upon this, the knowledge that the sovereign God appointed the deliverance of the people for now? What does he do? He prays for that very thing. In verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. And you read the prayer, he's praying exactly that the thing that God says is going to happen would, would happen. Daniel fervently prays for the very thing that he's positive the sovereign God is going to accomplish. Now Daniel is told the exact time that God is going to fulfill a prior prophecy made through Jeremiah. And so he prays about it. Notice that Daniel's knowing exactly what God was going to do and the precise time that he was going to do it in no way kept him from pleading with God to actually accomplish what had been promised. It was actually the knowledge of the sovereign appointment of God that drove Daniel to prayer. The more certain we are about God's sovereign promises and providence, 
the more we will plead for the very things we know belong to us in His covenant. That's just how the Bible works. When the saints knew the certainty of what God promised, they would pray even more fervently for that. Let's go now to the New Testament and see another example of that. Uh, Turn to Acts chapter 4. The book of Acts chapter 4, starting verse 23. This is the very first prayer meeting recorded in the Bible, in, in the Apostolic Church for us. So, uh, following Pentecost, so here are the days after Pentecost, the disciples get together to pray, and this first prayer meeting of the Apostolic Church is a classic illustration of the biblical leadership of the sovereignty of God and prayer. Um, start, look at verse 23. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So they heard... So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and, the, the, and, that, the, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word with boldness. This prayer meeting was in response to the first great persecution of the church. The uh, apostle had just been let go from jail. And uh, and they were being told that if you continue to preach, you're going to get beat up, you're going to get arrested, you may even die. So they come back, they report these things, and that's when this prayer meeting happens. Isn't it amazing that they did not begin their prayers the way we would probably have done? See how they begin in verse 24? Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They started by worshiping God and reminding Him and they themselves of His greatness and sovereignty. That's how they began their prayers. When our personal world is about to collapse, we usually do not begin our prayers by calmly saying, Lord, you are alone our God, you created all things, and right now you are in perfect control of all things and every person. That's not usually how... And there is appropriate times to just say, help God, uh, I need you right now. But we don't usually start like that. We usually rush into God's presence, blurt out our problem, and tell God to do something quick or the whole cause will be lost. Why is it so important that we establish a habit of beginning our prayers with true worship and praise? Or, let me back up. Is it important that we get in a habit of starting our prayers with worship and praise, with adoration of God? That seems to be a pattern we find in the scriptures, in the Psalms, and so on. 
is a pattern that uh, is in the outline of prayer that the Lord gave us, the commonly known as the Lord's Prayer. So why is it so important? Well, God is worthy of our worship, regardless of what our problems are. It is only fitting that we always remember that entering God's presence is an amazing privilege, regardless of what's going on in our lives. And by doing this, it will help us refocus. If all we see is the problem, we are sure to lose sight of God's power and control. But when we refocus and start thinking about who God is, there's hope, even as we think about the problem that we're bringing before the Lord. In the case of the disciples, who are these insignificant human authorities in comparison to the God who made heaven and earth? Now, by praying that way, put things in, in perspective. Here we are preaching the word of the God who made heaven and earth. Why are we going to be afraid of the Sanhedrin or the council of elders that just threatened us? You can begin to see that the early Christians consciously prayed from a carefully laid foundation of faith in God's absolute sovereignty. They are praying to this God because He's absolutely sovereign. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He can do all things, and he has appointed all things. Now, you, you notice that in this prayer, they quote Psalm 2, uh, there in the middle. And if you're reading, looking at the Bible, you can see that's indented, and so on, to indicate that's a quotation, and that is poet, poetry. Now, why did the church remind God of how David's prophecy concerning the world's hatred of Christ was so clearly fulfilled in the crucifixion. Why did they do that here in verses 25 through 27? Well, the Christians were reminding themselves in God that they were, at that moment, in the very same situation that their elder brother was at, uh, that had been before, before them. Their elder brother, Jesus Christ, had been hated and in trouble. Now they are hated and in trouble. And just as Christ was safe in the hands of his father, so were they. So they quote Psalm 2 to remind themselves and God that they are in the Messiah. They are in the, in the Son of God, the one who um, had victory over the enemies through his death on the cross. Now exactly what did all the enemies of Christ do to him? Why were, why were they all brought together into one solid power block, according to this prayer? So he quotes Psalm 2 about all the enemies of Christ hating him and bring together into one solidified enemy group. Why did that happen, according to this prayer? Because God purposed it in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. So you have the nations here, and the Romans and the Jews, getting together to attack Christ by attacking his church. And why are they doing that? Because God purposed that to, to happen. Uh, these persecuted Christians reminded themselves and their, and their God that those wicked enemies did only what God's hand and power and will had decided before should happen. That is confidence in the absolute sovereignty of God. And we may talk about our 
power of self-determination to decide whatever, that nobody can, can interfere with that, or you can blame all the bad things on the devil. But in the times of real trial, we will lose our confidence without a grip on a sovereign God. Those, these, these besieged Christians here in, in Acts chapter 4 saw no, saw no conflict between fervent prayer and God's sovereign degree, decrease. They, they knew that nothing could happen to them that had not been decreed by God any more than it could have happened to Christ. And it was their confidence in the fact that God decrees all things that come to pass, that gave those Christians the courage and faith to, in time, to pray in time of affliction. It was because they knew that God is in charge that they reach out to God. In verse 29, 29 the people finally get around to asking for something. And it takes quite a bit of verse, a few verses to get to the petition. In verse 29, this is what they ask. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. As, I, as we read this prayer, it, it is even more amazing that when they do finally ask for specific help from God, that they ask for the grace to boldly keep on preaching the very same message that got them into trouble in the first place because they knew that preaching was clearly the will of God. That's what God had put them there. So they pray for boldness to do that. They leave the persecution with God and pray for boldness to declare what they know is the truth of God regardless of the results. Real prayer is a joyful submission to a sovereign God to be used for His purposes. And we, come, we could come up with more examples from both Testaments, but here we have Two examples in Daniel and in the Apostolic Band, uh, an illustration that our brothers and sisters from the Old and New Testaments do not see any trouble in believing in both the absolute sovereignty of God and the necessity of prayer. These two passages show us that. Any questions before we, we continue? Basic fact number two, then. It's not wrong for us to pray what has been termed selfish prayers. Pray for things that we want, or things that are, are part of our lives, things that are, uh, we want to go a certain way. Uh, some have said that that's the case, and, and the scriptures don't teach that. For example, is it wrong to ask God to keep my children safe as they travel? Or that He enable them to find good employment? If my wife goes to the hospital, is it wrong for me to pray that the Lord would make it uh, go well and for her to be healed? Uh, in none of these cases, I have the knowledge of God's decree, right? I don't know what God decreed for those things. So what is it that I should do? Good job. Yes, I should pray. I should pray uh, to bring everything before the Lord. In prayer, whatever it is, bring before the Lord. I think David helps us see that. Um, look, look at Second Samuel chapter twelve. Tonight, our Bible pages are going to get unstuck. 
2 Samuel chapter 12. You know what's going on here? Um, David repented from his sin with Bathsheba and from killing Uriah, her husband. Uh, God says, your life will be spared, but the life of the child that uh, um, you had with Bathsheba will be, Bathsheba, it will be taken away. The, 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 the boy is going to die. God clearly reveals what's going to happen to him. The child is going to die. David has a clear revelation of God's will, a decree given to them. So what does David do with that information? Chris? He prays. He, he, he still feels constrained to plead with God to spare the sick child's life. Look at verses 16 and 17 of 2 Samuel 12. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Was David wrong in praying as he did? So some say, Mr. Hunt says no. Anybody for the other side? Equal time. Well, the pastor doesn't tell us, does it? Had not God said that the child would die and therefore it was a waste of time to pray? Or does that conclusion not necessarily follow of what we see here? Well, you know the story, right? The child died in spite of David's plea. The servants were afraid to inform David of the child's death. They thought that uh, his state of mind might make him do something foolish when he found out the child died. But David noticed that something was going on, and he, he perceived the truth, and he asked them, is the child dead? When the servant said yes, the scriptures tell us what David did. Look at verse 20. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped then he went to his own house, and when he, had, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Whoa, what's David doing here? Accepting, okay. What else is he doing here? Worshipping, yeah, yeah. The moment David realized that the child was dead, he totally accepted God's providence. He first worshipped God and then proceeded to get on with his life. David's servants were amazed because they expected David to weep and wail and carry on in an uncontrollable manner after having seen him for so many days in that state before the child died. So they questioned David and we see in David's answer the heart of this lesson in prayer. Look at verse 21 through 23. Then the servant said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me 
that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What's David saying here? What is the attitude of his heart as he pleads with God to spare his child? What David is saying is this. As long as that child had breath, I prayed to God, to him alone, as the only one who could keep him alive, God was pleased to answer my prayer. And that answer was no. I said, blessed be the name of the Lord, and got on with my life. I'll bow in humble faith to God's sovereign providence. That's, that's what David is saying here. David may not have said out loud, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. But the attitude was certainly in his heart as he prayed. You know, you and I may pray for whatever our heart desires, as long as we can sincerely leave it up to God to decide if the answer should be yes or no. It's okay to pray for anything that is according to His word, anything that's legal, lawful according to His word, as long as we're okay with the answer being yes or no. Even our Lord prayed that way. Remember at Gethsemane, as He's in agony, thinking about what's waiting for Him in being separated from his father. He prays vehemently that the Lord would uh, let that cup pass from him. But he always added, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's what our master did. Are we greater than our master? No. We pray the same way. So it's not wrong for us to pray what has been termed selfish prayer. There's prayers for things that we want, desires, uh, things that we delight in, and so on. But we have to pray with the hard attitude that says, but if whatever your will is, that I will accept and rejoice in it. Any questions? Yes, Scott. Um, just a thought. Um, I, I believe that David did um, the absolute right thing, even with the result that came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it speaks to the same kind of attitude that Moses had in, at the end of Exodus 32, and then in the beginning of 33, where God said, I'm going to destroy the people of Israel because of their heinous sin. And Moses didn't say, man, that's rough, but I guess they deserve it. They, I mean, you just told them not to do that. Yeah. They did it anyhow. But no, he, he, God, that, that was God's way of saying, I'm going to give you a chance to repent. And so as the, their mediator, Moses pled for them, and then God said, okay, I won't destroy them, but I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I'm going to destroy you because of my mm-hmm. holiness. And he pleaded again, pled, pled, with yeah. him, show your favor. Who would we be if we are your people, and how would we be your people if you're not with us? And so, yeah, the, and answer, the results are slightly different, but I think they both did what. Yeah, Moses, Moses got a yes, while David got a no, for the same sort of scenario, and that with Abraham as well pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. It's interesting that Abraham got a yes, and Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. And the reason for that is that there was not even five righteous souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's interesting is that we tend to think of Jesus getting a no to his prayer at Gethsemane. But Hebrews tells us that it was a yes 
the answer. In Hebrews, it tells us that, that God answered Jesus' prayer to deliver him from death, and he did that through death in the resurrection. So there's that. And, and David understands that there is a, a, a sort of yes in his answer as well, in saying, I will be with him. I'm going to him as well at some point. Any other thoughts or questions before we close? So we saw two basic facts. That our brothers and sisters in the inspired pages of the scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, do not see any contradiction between God's sovereign appointment of all things and fervent prayer. And we see that there's nothing wrong with praying about everything that is in our heart, all our desires, as long as we are submitting to God in that answer. Uh, Lois. Gone on with David's prayer is um, that he would have to acknowledge, and he did to Nathan, but acknowledge to God that he's the reason, his sin is the reason for the loss of his child, and so why punish the child? Um, and I think that that's probably a really important component of, of prayer is you know, confessing our sin, um, making ourselves right so that God. So, um, I don't. So, I understand what you're saying. David did all that. The Bible tells us that he he repented from from his sins and so on. And God says, "Yes, you are truly repentant, but sin always has its consequences. And though I'm not going to take your life, I'm going to take your child's life." As a matter of fact, uh, because David stole, as it were, one man's life, he paid fourfold. Four, four of his sons died because of, we can connect that to that particular sin. Any other comments or questions before we close tonight? Yes, Renee. I, just, I find it sort of poetic that God does not grant David's request to save his son with Bathsheba, but then he, he, he blesses the marriage through the birth of Solomon immediately after that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sometime after that, yes. So we'll save the next three basic facts about sovereignty of God and prayer for next Wednesday, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you are a sovereign God and that you answer prayers. We thank you that you drive us to prayer because of your sovereign control of all things. Now we pray you dismiss us with your blessings. Take us home safely tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.